0: Thanks for checking out the podcast. This week we had our special Fall Fest event and heard an awesome message from Pastor Tom. This Sunday's message is called, I Am the Lord Your God. Let's check it out. Uh, Good morning, Word of Life. It is Great that you're able to come and be here and be a part of service this weekend. Big welcome, of course, to everyone joining us online. But I just want to say, wasn't that an incredible video from Tim and Colleen? I mean, I really mean, that is such a powerful story. And I often think you expect to hear stuff like that from, you know, preachers, people like me, that we're supposed to say stuff like that. But, you know, when you hear it from people in the congregation, just real people going about their lives that have an incredible life-changing encounter with God, it always is inspiring to me and incredibly motivating. And I want to tell you that as a church, we are on a mission. And our mission is to have more and more stories like that. If we are a church that doesn't have stories like that, we are failing in our mission and we are committed to accomplishing the mission. Can I get a big Word of Life Amen. Amen. So so glad for those and I appreciate you guys being willing to share your story. But one thing I know, and one thing I'm completely confident in, is that the message of Jesus is absolutely life-changing. Tim and Colleen is one example of many. If you speak to people here at the church, you'll hear story after story of how Jesus has changed their life. Some researchers even say that there have been billions of people all over the planet that have made the life-changing decision to follow Jesus. For 2,000 years, people have been putting their faith and their trust in Jesus, and there is in in countable stories, if that is even a word. There's a number of stories. Who knows how many stories of life change that has happened of people having their lives complete and utterly transformed by the message of Jesus. And I was thinking about all of that as I was coming ready and preparing to come and share something, hopefully, that is helpful for you today. And one verse that stood out to me is from Matthew 5, starting in verse three. And Jesus is teaching, and he says this, God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It could be understood as being brokenhearted or disappointed or emotionally worn out. Being poor in spirit or spiritually poor is understood by the comparison Jesus makes of being poor financially or socially poor. Remember, this is in ancient, first-century world. And in that culture, there was certainly no social safety nets. People regularly starved to death in this environment. When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, many of the people who are listening to him do not know where their next meal is coming from. Poor people were often looked down on. Often the only choice they had was begging or crime or prostitution. Consequently, poor people were desperate. And they were well aware of all that was missing from their life. There is no way to mistake what it was that they needed. But it's possible that we can be poor in spirit and not realize it. We can be spiritually bankrupt and yet not consider God at all. We can have all the basics of life covered. We can have enough money in the bank. Everyone in the family is healthy. There's a roof over our heads. Work going's okay. Where's the desperation? Where's the begging people for help? Where's the fear and panic about how we're going to make it? I had a conversation with a friend of mine a number of years ago now. A guy had come to our church who was a heroin addict and he fought through his addiction and got the help that he needed and the ministry that he needed. And was able to break free of addiction and start piecing his life back together. And I was so blown away and so encouraged and so inspired by this story of absolute desperation and somebody finding freedom in Jesus. But I was talking to a friend of mine who is not a believer, does not share my faith in Jesus. And I was telling him about it, hoping that this would bring some inspiration. This was going to be, come on, this is it. Come on, look how amazing Jesus is. And my friend's reply to me, took me off guard. He just said, well, yeah, of course, people like that are drawn to the gospel. What about everyone else? People that are desperate, people at the end of their rope, people that have hit rock bottom, of course they're turning to God. Of course they're seeking out something. But I'm not like that. Everything's good. Is the message of Jesus relevant and life-changing for people who are hurting and desperate? Yes. But it's equally as relevant and life-changing for people who appear that they've got it all figured out. Despite being financially stable, we can have a deep awareness that there's more to life. Even though there's no crisis, there's still an emptiness and something missing. Even though there might not be an immediate crisis, we can't quite find peace. There may be a long list of things that we're thankful for, but it's never enough. There are moments of happiness, but there's a lack of true joy. Despite trying to be a good person, there's still a strain in our closest relationships. Whether someone is aware of their need for God or not, the message of Jesus is equally relevant and life-changing. But until we realize our need for him, which is what Jesus said in that verse in Matthew, typically we hold him away at arm's length or we push him away completely, which honestly makes sense. If we don't see how the message of Jesus affects us, why would we completely reorientate our lives based on what he says? if we don't see that we need a savior, if we don't see that we are desperately in need of God, if we don't understand about ourselves and our own lives, if we do not realize that we are spiritually poor, why would we look for a solution? If we're in spiritual poverty, we can mistake it. We can believe that everything is together. In financial poverty, there's no mistaking it. There's complete desperation. If someone is in poverty to the point where they are facing starving to death, no one needs to convince that person they need help. But we can be in spiritual poverty and not correctly diagnose what's going on. But if we're honest, we just know that something is not right. There are other times, of course, where it's blatantly obvious how desperately we need God. I talked about the man a moment ago who had the life-controlling heroin addiction. Over the years, I've known people come to faith in extreme circumstances, in jail cells and homeless shelters. I've known people with addictions and significant problems find faith. Others while dealing with health concerns or financial ruin. People whose relationships were destroyed. People who've made mistakes that are going to ruin their lives. People that have caused incredible harm to others have all come to faith in extreme circumstances. And there's a moment in the Bible that I want to spend most of our time in today that's talking about a nation that is in slavery. A group of people who woke up every day suffering terribly in life a people that woke up every day and were abused and mistreated who were overworked and despised a nation who definitely understood and realized their need for God now the passage we're going to be in it's towards the front of the Bible in the book of Exodus so if you're not familiar with the biblical story if you've forgotten you got some gaps somewhere let me fill you in on where we're up to in the biblical story so far first thing if you read the Bible you'll see that God created everything as part of that creation, he created a garden. In the garden, it was absolute perfection, and he created two people, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave in to temptation. They sinned. They ate fruit that they were told, do not eat. And at that moment, sin entered the world. God starts making promises to Abraham years later that he was going to fix the problem of sin that Adam and Eve welcomed in. The problem of sin in the book of Genesis just compounds, and it becomes an extreme melodrama. But Abraham gets a promise that God is going to fix this up. Abraham's descendants, he goes on to have a son, grandson, great-grandson. One of his grandsons by the name of Joseph. Joseph, through an incredibly dramatic situation, finds himself the second in command in Egypt, only behind Pharaoh. Egypt was the major world power at the time. And here's Joseph, descendant of Abraham. Abraham. Carrying, fulfilling, walking with the promises that his great-grandfather Abraham had. And here he is in an extreme position of power and influence. And as he's there, he then brings his 11 brothers. Wild story. If you want to read the book of Genesis, it is shocking. But they come and they join him with a level of respectability, with a level of prestige. Things start to turn sour As these people, these carriers of the promises made to great-grandfather Abraham that God was going to fix the problem of sin, that God was going to call them a unique nation, his blessing was going to uniquely fall upon them. As time goes by, the Egyptians turn hostile against the Hebrew people. For hundreds of years they lived in slavery, at which point in history we have the birth of Moses. Moses was born to a Hebrew family. He was then hidden in a basket in the Nile River as a baby to escape death. He was then found by the princess and raised in the Pharaoh's household. Moses runs away from Egypt later in life after murdering an Egyptian who was beating his fellow Hebrew. And for 40 years, Moses, who'd grown up in the Pharaoh's palace, who had killed somebody, hides for 40 years, terrified to go back to Egypt. And that is the person that God calls from a burning bush and says God is going to raise him up to be a great leader, to bring freedom to his chosen people. God tells Moses he's going to use him to fulfill what was promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, a promise that the Hebrew people were still clinging on to in slavery. Moses goes back to Egypt and tells Pharaoh that he is to let God's people go. Pharaoh not only refuses, but forces the slaves to work harder than ever. So now Moses is in trouble with both Pharaoh and the Hebrew people. The very people that he's supposed to be leading out of captivity have turned because it went bad when he went to Pharaoh. People have turned on him. And Moses has another encounter with God. And this is the portion of scripture we're going to be in today in a small part of this conversation. This is God speaking to Moses, recommitting his plans and his promises to set his people free. Exodus 6 verse 7, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That is the phrase that has stuck with me this week. I am the Lord your God. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, it's affirming who God is. He alone is all-powerful. He alone is the creator of all. There is no one who compares to his glory or majesty. He is the Lord God. But he adds to that, your. He is the Lord God. That's accurate. It's fair. It's appropriate to say. But he adds the Lord your God. It becomes personal. It's inviting. It's filled with hope. He is in essence saying to his people, with me, the Lord God Almighty, as your God, you will live in peace with me. You will experience me working in your hearts and minds, bringing freedom. You will experience firsthand the incredible love I have for humanity. You will see me be true to my promises again and again. You will see me bless those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for me because I am the Lord your God. The phrase in that verse, in verse 7, that I will claim you as my own people. It's somewhat a strange turn of phrase in English. It's, sort of an unusual phrase, a a strange sentence that you and I would find clunky if we were talking like that. I will claim you as my own people. But the Old Testament portion of the Bible is originally written in Hebrew, and the phrasing in Hebrew, the language, is the same that's used in uh, official binding agreements or commitments for a marriage or an adoption. When they're doing some kind of official agreement, the words that are used are the same words that are used here, I will claim you as my people. The same language is similar and would definitely bring about the meaning that's very that is coinciding with marriage and adoption. I Just think for a moment about being married or adopting somebody, being married to be completely entangled in your life with another person, to lead a home together, to daily love somebody, offer an adoption, to care for someone. It's a commitment, As we adopt, if someone adopts a child, it's a commitment to protect and provide for that child. When a parent adopts a child, they're promising to raise the child and teach them how to live in the world. And both marriage and adoption, they're both a permanent commitment. Both adoption and marriage are a commitment to a deep, loving relationship. And with all that in mind, we see God making promises here. With all that in mind, God comes and makes promises. Now some promises are big, and others, not so much. Just this past weekend, we were here um, setting up for Fall Fest, and Megan and I thought it would be a great idea to bring the twins. And so we're here with the twins, Friday night, Luke and Brenna were helping out, um, getting Nerf Wars figured out. So we came to help make it happen, and so I made a promise to the twins, if you're good, which is code for if you don't send me psycho, <laughs> I will give you candy. <laughs> if you give me no headaches, I will give you candy. And after a few hours, they worked hard and, you know, we got a trial run of playing Nerf Wars and uh, let's just say I won and Megan lost, but we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> but after a few hours of working hard, I made good on my promise. Problem was, I went to where the candy usually stashed. Miss Annie, she normally has a bowl of Tootsie Rolls on the front desk. There were no Tootsie Rolls. So then, I have to make a confession to you. I figured out the kid's pastor would have some goodies, so I broke into Pastor Lisa's office and stole some Starburst. She does not know this yet, (laughs) Pastor Lisa I apologize, but the twins were very grateful. (laughs) But that's a small promise, don't drive me crazy, I give you candy, small promise. I've made much bigger promises to my kids, I've told them that I'm going to love them every single day of their lives, I've told them that I'm going to help them become great men and a great lady, that I'll always be there for them. And I know it's typical for parents to make these kinds of promises to their kids. Now, a promise is a promise, but it's a lot easier to steal some candy from Pastor Lisa than to show up every day for three little people. I spent some time thinking about the difference about this this week, and I concluded that one is a promise of action, I'll give you candy. Another is a promise of character, I'm going to love you every day. That's a promise of character. In the passage we just read, we see God promising both the promise of millions of Israelite slaves being freed, and the promise of God's complete and permanent love, protection, and care. A few chapters later in the story, we see that God splits the Red Sea in two and a nation of slaves walks into freedom. This is a promise of action. And the rest of the Bible is all about how God is fulfilling the promise of his character. The imagery of adoption and marriage being lived out on every page. The Bible is the historical record of God showing love and a commitment, of God giving care and protection to his people, of people being a valued part of the family, no longer an outsider, the promise of our deepest spiritual needs being met, so we don't have to live in spiritual poverty or destitution anymore. Now, we read a single verse from Exodus 6 when the Lord speaks to Moses. I want to take a few minutes and just read the whole passage to you or a larger portion of that passage. There's some powerful stuff in here for us. So starting back in verse 6, therefore, this is God speaking, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, the God, I will set, uh, I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord your God. Now, as I was reading around this passage this week and trying to study a little bit and learning from the experts, somebody pointed out, and I thought it was interesting, that there are seven times where God says in here, I will. God says, I will, which we can take to heart as promises that God is making. I will. Firstly, it talks about I will free you from your oppression. I will rescue you from your slavery. I will redeem you. These are bold promises. These are big promises of God saying, this is how I'm going to move in your life. I'm going to bring freedom. I'm going to bring breakthrough. I'm going to bring rescue. It also goes on. I will claim you as my own people. I will be your God. This speaks about the relationship, the healed and whole relationship that exists with covenant with God. I will claim you as my own people. I will be your God. We also have promises that God is going to fulfill great things. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. The promises within I will are promises of freedom and joy of being redeemed and rescued out of the torment they were experiencing every day. It's the promise of an unbreakable relationship with the Lord God Almighty, that He will be our source of hope and peace. And just like us, when we make a promise, we're putting our reputation on the line. And God is doing the exact same thing here, to bring the nation of slaves into freedom and to permanently commit to being their God in a loving, protective, caring relationship He's putting his reputation on the line. It means that if he breaks his word, he's going against himself. He's destroying his reputation. If God doesn't deliver his people into freedom, if he fails to love and protect and care for them, he is destroying his good name. When God makes these promises to Moses over 3,000 years ago now, he is staking his reputation and his good name whether future generations will trust him or have hope in him or faith in him is on the line because of the bold promises he's making in this moment. And we get this idea for ourselves. In our own lives, we understand this and we comprehend this. When we make a promise or we stake our reputation on something, we make sure we can fulfill it before we make the bold promises. I was scrolling through social media, was probably Instagram the other day, and something came up, it was kinda of like a you know, challenge of is there a single song That for a million dollars, you could recite every lyric from start to end. I got to thinking about it. Now this was hypothetical, there was not really a million dollars on the line. But I'm a music fan. I love music. Much to Megan's frustration, I listen to the same music over and over again. I must have listened to, I don't know how many Bob Dylan songs, Beatles songs, over and over again. Fun fact, uh, I have successfully got the three kids into the Beatles recently. If you want to see a side of Megan that you will never see on a Sunday morning, you just need to get three little kids going, na, 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 na. Hey, Jude. Right before bedtime. It's a sight to behold. But despite being a music fan, despite listening to my favorite songs over and over again, when I heard that question, that you know, challenge of, you know, for a million dollars, could you recite the words of your favorite song in the correct order, you know, just start to finish, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I would stake my reputation on that. I'm not even willing to say I can remember all the words of my favorite songs. I'm not willing to stake my reputation on that. And that's just reciting the words of a favorite song. And yet God is taking his reputation on being able to deliver a nation into freedom and to commit to them and to make sure that there is freedom and peace that comes, that there is an unshakable relationship. This is not just a one-off, but this is an eternal commitment that God is making. He's staking his reputation on his ability and willingness to fulfill those life-changing promises. I'm not even willing to stake my reputation on being able to recount the lyrics to Hey Jude accurately. But God is taking responsibility for healing the broken relationship with humanity, of blessing and fulfilling his promises to his people. The Lord gives Moses these incredible promises. And now Moses has the responsibility to go back and tell the Israelites what the Lord had said. And this is verse 9. So Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. God is affirming his character, making promises to the Israelites. But they were defeated, broken, exhausted, and disappointed. Now before any of the events that we've read about in chapter 6, Moses had previously gone to see Pharaoh in chapter 5 about releasing God's people. So prior to this moment where the Lord is speaking to Moses, prior to that, Moses had gone, spoken to Pharaoh. It did not go well for Pharaoh if there was going to be freedom for his people. If God's people were gonna be set free for Pharaoh, that comes at a cost. Because the Hebrew slaves, they were responsible for the slave labor. All the construction projects that Egypt were a part of, it was the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites that were part of the building process. So Pharaoh, he not only gets angry, he gets furious and takes action. To suppress the cry for freedom, he added more work for the Hebrew slaves. They were the labor for the construction and the building work, and the Egyptians had been supplying them straw so they could make bricks for their work. After the meeting with Moses, the Pharaoh declared that the Israelites had to figure out their own straw. They still had to meet their regular work quota. So now, let's make their job harder, let's make it take longer, and we're going to demand the same results. The promises God is making could not be in greater contrast to the reality these people are living in. God delivering them was their only hope, and they couldn't even bring themselves to listen what he has to say. It's not unreasonable that they had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. After feeling a sense of hope that God was finally going to release them, it actually gets worse. I know I would feel discouraged too. It's easy to understand the outcome. They refused to listen anymore. They refused to listen to the promises of God because they had gotten discouraged. How common is this scenario? Life has a way of being discouraging. Life is often unfair. Bad things happen to good people. Our expectations go sideways. I've known people where life has just been one challenge after the other. So being discouraged can easily stop us listening or caring about the promises of God. Being discouraged can stop us from being aware of our spiritual poverty and our deep need for Him. Maybe that describes you. Maybe that describes your faith right now. Maybe if you're honest, you would say that you're poor in spirit. But you're so discouraged with life that finding any hope in the promises of God just seems impossible. My friend, the first step for you is realizing your need for Him. And to you, God says, I am the Lord your God. That to you, He promises that He is the source of freedom and joy. That He will redeem and rescue you out of the trials that you're experiencing today that he's initiating an unbreakable relationship with you, that he will bring you to hope and peace. Maybe you're not feeling discouraged by life. Another reason I often see for people not giving any thought and not listening to the promises of God is distraction. A friend of mine I was speaking to recently, he told me that whenever he asks somebody how they're doing and they reply busy, he follows up and asks, apart from busy, how are you doing? Because he was getting the busy as the answer to that question so often it just had no meaning anymore. Everyone's busy. Everyone's calendar's full. We're busy and active and consumed with life. Our lives consist of things that need our time and our attention. We have a growing list of responsibilities and obligations, and often that's meant we've stopped giving any concern to the promises of God, and we don't even recognize we're living in spiritual poverty. It's not even on our radar that we're spiritually bankrupt. Back in 2008, USA Today released a report, and the report was based on the findings of a, a, a poll that they've conducted every year since 1987. So this is 2021 20, years' worth of research had gone into this. And the poll asked people about their busyness, and it found that every single year since 1987, people were reporting that they were busier than the year before. Which means that over a 20 year period as a society and as a culture, we've just been getting busier and busier. We've added more and more to our calendar. We've signed ourselves up for more and more stuff. And many times it's resulted in people not giving the time to consider their spirituality. I wonder how many people are poor in spirit because they focused on everything else. While some are discouraged and others are distracted, others are disinterested. This perhaps describes a blatant misunderstanding of our deep need for God. Maybe someone who's not discouraged in life and not distracted with busyness, but simply has no interest in the promises of God at all. There's a lack of urgency, a lack of importance, or a devaluing of what a life of faith really means. Desperation has a way of getting our focus and our attention. For instance, an astronaut Is desperately monitoring how much oxygen they have a deep-sea diver is desperately monitoring how much oxygen they have in the tank the truth is neither an astronaut nor a diver nor us need oxygen any more or less than the other there's just an awareness of how desperate they are I will forever find it confusing how people will truly believe in God they'll believe the message of Jesus And yet, it has no bearing on their life at all. It's possible for people to believe in God and even be polite and respectful towards Him and still be in spiritual poverty because they have no desperation, no urgency. They fail to see how desperately they need a Savior. People can be discouraged because of the hardships of life, they can be distracted because our focus is off. We can be disinterested because our priorities are faulty. But with the Lord your God, we can be hopeful and not discouraged because He is true to His promises. With the Lord your God, we can be focused, not distracted because He has made us and helped us realize that He is the way, the truth, and the life. With the Lord your God, we can be aware instead of disinterested of how deeply and desperately we need a Savior. God has a way of working in our lives that brings us to the point where we are very conscious of our need for him. We become aware of our spiritual poverty, whether it's being emotionally depleted, brokenhearted, disconnected, unfulfilled, alienated, lost, afraid, discontent, or rejected. Not only are we aware and understand that we're poor in spirit, but also that God and only God can make us spiritually rich. Only God can heal our deepest spiritual needs and hurts. Only he gives true purpose and meaning. Only God gives true identity and acceptance. The only one who can ascribe a person value is the creator. And the creator declares you priceless, regardless of what anyone else has ever said or done to you or how anyone has ever made you feel. The creator, the one whose opinion truly matters, declares you priceless. The Lord your God says you're invaluable and loved. In the Bible, there's an interesting character So interesting, in fact, that my parents decided to name me after this guy, Thomas. He's known as Doubting Thomas. He's known as Doubting Thomas because following the death and resurrection of Jesus, Thomas heard the news that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he doubted what the other disciples and other followers of Jesus were telling him. And we see this in John 20, starting in verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, the one who doubted, the one who wanted proof, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And this moment obviously had a deep impact on Thomas. As he says, my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And I make mention of this scripture because it mirrors the verse we've been focused on in Exodus perfectly. In Exodus 6, I am the Lord your God. The words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. It's impossible to miss the similarity and I don't think it's an accident. Think about all that was promised by God back in Exodus about 1,400 years earlier. And here Thomas is saying that all of that is found in Jesus. I am the Lord your God, my God, my Lord. Jesus is able to fulfill those promises. That's what Thomas is declaring. The promise of freedom is in him. That Jesus is the one that gives the promise of joy and peace that the kind of commitment that we see in a marriage or an adoption, that is the depth of commitment Jesus gives to you and I, that he is making big, bold promises, not only in what he will do, but in who he is, that he is the source of freedom and joy, that he will redeem and rescue out of the trials we experience, that he's initiating an unbreakable relationship with us, that he will bring us to hope and peace, that in spite of all the reasons we have to be discouraged to be distracted, to be disinterested. We look to Jesus to heal our spiritual poverty. The moment in Exodus, when God's people were in literal slavery, the only way to freedom was God's intervention. They simply could not free themselves. The slaves' very best efforts could not have defeated the Egyptian forces, but God made a way. All of that is a picture The Red Sea, the nation of Israel being delivered out of Egypt is a foreshadowing, a picture of what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. To escape from death to life across the Red Sea is a vivid picture of God rescuing people, setting them free so they can live a lifetime in harmony with him, enjoying all of his promises. That moment helps inform us and teach us about the power of the cross. God blesses those who are poor in spirit, and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed, how fortunate, how joyful are the people who get to the point in life when they realize their need for God. That spiritual poverty, spiritual slavery is robbing them of life. The message of Jesus only makes sense when we're honest about the problem of sin. The list of regrets, the list of ways we've dishonored God with our lives the many many decisions we've all made to reject him and choose anything else over him and if we're honest that includes every single one of us and it's disqualified us from a relationship with him sin has separated humanity from the father and it's excluded us from the promises of god but god is motivated and driven by love God has an indescribable love for people, even a love for people who actively push Him away and reject Him. As He was being crucified, it was the Son of God who forgave the very people who were killing Him. Just like God needed to intervene to rescue the Israelite slaves, He needed to intervene to set humanity free. Humanity could never repay the cost of sin and we could never repair our broken relationship with God ourselves. Because of humanity's inability to fix the problem of sin, God became humanity, sending his son to live a sinless life so he could go to the cross and pay the price for each and every reason. We are disqualified from a relationship with a loving father. We talked a lot today about being poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be rich in spirit? To be rich in spirit is to live with a healed and restored relationship with God. It's to live with a deep confidence that Jesus has paid the price, paid the debt for every single reason you and I are disqualified from a relationship with a holy and perfect God. The past, present, and future sins and mistakes and regrets have been dealt with once and for all. To be rich in spirit is to have the Holy Spirit active in our lives is to have the Holy Spirit shaping our character, working in our hearts and minds. It's to have the Holy Spirit producing an overflow of peace and joy and gentleness and love and patience. It's finding joy in showing the love of God to others. To be spiritually rich is leaving aside selfishness and instead valuing healthy relationships with those around us. It's a total confidence about eternity, that eternal life with God in complete perfection awaits everyone who declares Jesus as Lord. Romans 10 verse nine. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. It is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I have a couple of questions for you. If you wanna go ahead, take your phone out, write these down. You got a piece of paper or something. Maybe this be helpful to come back at some point this week and think about, pray about, maybe talk to someone you trust about. But first question is this, where have you become discouraged, distracted, or disinterested? Where have you become discouraged, distracted, or disinterested? Second question, what happens when you realize your need for God? What happens? when you realize how much you desperately need a savior? What happens when you realize just how much you desperately need Jesus? Exodus six, verse seven, I am the Lord, your God. Thomas said in John 20, my Lord, my God. By sending the son, the father initiated healing the broken relationship between humanity and God. He's made the first move, he's initiated this. He says, I am the Lord your God. The question is, will we give the same response as Thomas? My Lord, my God. It's a perfect call and response. I am the Lord your God. Yes, you are my Lord and my God. And the question I have for everyone today, is that your response to him? I am the Lord your God. And do we echo what Thomas said 2,000 years ago? Face to face with the resurrected Jesus. Yes, you are the Lord my God. You may be here today. You may have never heard the story of Jesus before. This may be a million miles away from your mind and what you deal with every day. I don't know, but you're here and you're here today. And this is the message that you listen to. And I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that God works in life and circumstances to get us here at the right time. And you may be here, and you may have never heard this message before, but I believe this is what you needed today. You needed to know about a Savior that loves you. You needed to know that God is motivated and driven by love to heal a broken relationship with you. So whether you've heard this message of Jesus many, many times, or if you've never heard it, I wanna put that question to you today. Is your response. Yes, you are the Lord my God. And if you're uncomfortable with that question, if it was a one on one conversation and we were talking eye to eye, and I said, Are you following God? Is He the Lord your God? Would that conversation get awkward? Would it feel uncomfortable? If the answer is yes, my next question is, But do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he's the savior of the world? Do you believe he went to the cross, that he lived a sinless life so that on the cross he could pay the price so that we could heal our broken relationship? If your answer is yes, my friend, you are out of excuses for waiting another moment from committing to follow him with everything. So if everyone here would close your eyes and bow your heads, let's just give privacy to those around you and help us focus on what matters right now. But if you be honest and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start. I'd love to pray with you. And I give you my word. We're not going to do anything that's embarrassing or something you'll regret on the drive home. But we're going to pray together in just a moment. And when we do, I'd love to include you. If this is it, if this is the moment where it all turns around for you, when you make that decision to commit to follow God, I'd love to pray for you. So if that's you today, would you just put your hand in the air just so I know who we're praying for. Wonderful. Amen. Anybody else here? Amen, thank you. Anyone else? Wonderful. This is the best decision you could ever make. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Anyone else? I don't want to draw this out, but I don't want you to miss out if this is your moment. Anybody else here today? Wonderful. Amen. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with people making the best decision they could ever make today. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer together. And we do this at the end of every service. The words are on the screen. I want to invite every single person here to pray this along with us. And come on, if you put your hand up or if you wanted to put your hand up, pray this with faith, believing that this is a life-changing moment. So come on, everybody. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you. To be Lord of my life, help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate one more time. Amen.